Hello and welcome to the Common Sense Gospel. I'm Danny Simmons. And I'm Kurt Norbit. Our title today is I Won't Serve an Angry God. That is something that uh, Kurt and I have heard through the years, different situations. I mean, people aren't banging on the door and you know yelling at us, but that it is said, and we have conversations where someone sees something that's just troubling in Scripture, that God has done something or decided to do something, and, and so the conclusion becomes, well, if that's who he is, I don't think I want any part of that. And so they seems to feel they seem to feel content leaving it there. And I just as a reminder, um, in our episode titled The Importance of Genesis, Kurt had made the point that God had done so many great things for man when the earth was created that, you know, this it wasn't a picture of an angry God. It was a picture of a God who uh, had created and designed all things for the benefit of man. So that shows his love and his care for man. And then Kurt went on to make the point that after man sinned against God, God had already made a way for man to be reconciled back to him. We have passages in the New Testament that tell us that Jesus was the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, you know, that tells us that God had put a plan in place to bring man back to himself. None of that looks like anger. So we just want to address this a little bit. We talk about those real points where it does look like God is uh, ferocious in his anger. Uh, we hear about the wrath of God, the anger of God, uh, that, that he is angry. And so we don't want to ignore that. We'll, we'll look at that and, and try to piece this together uh, as God gives us time today. And I just uh, thought a good place to start off would be to counterbalance that you know, really shallow perception and ac- accusation toward ca- to the character of God. Uh, it's, it's looking at God one-dimensionally. Oh, he's just angry. I like Jesus in the New Testament because he's just love and he never judged anybody. Well, it, we're created in the image of God and we like to acknowledge that we are complex beings. We're not just one-dimensional, one emotion or what have you. So God is even that to a greater degree as he's greater than, than his creation. So to look at God and say, he just loves to zap people. He's, he looks for any reason he can to judge. And so I, I don't like that kind of angry God, and I'm not going to serve him. Well, I believe that's kind of self-serving, actually, uh, to reduce God to that kind of a picture, because uh, I thought it'd be good to look into the Old Testament to start off and see just a, a couple of examples of God's compassion, um, his patience, and his kindness, and how that fits into what he declares about himself um, in a few moments as we will look at Ezekiel 18. But I would just go back to the very beginning and point out to someone, have you considered how God dealt with Adam and with Cain when they disobeyed him and committed a horrible sin? Cain murdering his brother. So how did God respond to that? Well, in both cases, he came to them, and instead of just instantly unloading his bag of thunderbolts at him, he asked a question. He asked Adam, where are you? He asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? Well, God knew the answer to those questions, so what is he driving at when he asks Abel and Cain those questions. He's trying to get them to stop and look at their situation 
acknowledge what they've done. He's giving them a chance to confess. Oh, the reason I'm hiding, Lord, and I'm not walking with you in the cool of the garden like we've always done is that uh, the woman you gave me, uh, she, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. So Adam doesn't acknowledge his, his sin, his weakness. Cain is very insolent toward God. I don't know where my brother, how, why should I care? Am I my brother's keeper? Very rude to God. Uh, basically telling God to, you know, bug off, mind your own business, I'm busy down here. Well, that shows the initial reaction of God to disobedience is to try to give an individual a chance to change that. He's not a draw first, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. He asks the question first. And then depending on man's response, then he reacts to it. He responds to what man shows him. And neither uh, Adam nor Cain were willing to own up and confess what they did, that they were guilty, they were wrong, they had sinned. And so God had to place some consequences on them. It is only at that point that he judged. And even when he judged Cain, he's still merciful. Because when he tells Cain, you're going to be a vagabond on the earth, you're not going to be able to settle down and, and live a stable life anywhere, Cain starts complaining. Your judgment's too harsh. People will see me and they'll kill me. So what does God do? He doesn't say, too bad, pal. You made your bed, now lay in it. He accommodates him in that. And here, Cain's basically still mouthing off to God. He, it, the scriptures tells us he gave a mark to Cain so that no one would kill him. So God is merciful to Cain in that. And Cain certainly deserves no mercy in this particular situation. Uh, another example we can look at early on in Genesis, uh, when we get to Genesis chapter 6, uh, and at verse 3, and uh, we've looked at this a little bit, I think, when we did our our uh, study on Genesis, we're told that the, the thought and intent of man's heart was only evil continually. So things have gotten really bad. So bad that God sees only one righteous person in the earth that he can work with. And so he tells Noah, warns him, I'm going to cause a flood. I want you to build an ark so that life can be preserved. I'm going to judge the earth because my spirit will not always strive with man. Yet he gives man 120 years. And I like to, to stop and think about this. What were those people thinking as they see Mo, uh, Noah begin to build this ark? Day after day after day, month after month, decade after decade, this huge thing that they're unfamiliar with is taking shape. And I'm sure the question was asked of Noah, what, what are you doing here? What is that thing? Well, God is going to judge, and this is his way of salvation. Yes, God's going to judge the sin, but he gives man a chance. 120 years of daily testimony, calling man to repent, warning him what's going to happen, 
every time they look out there and see that ark being built. And all of this is consistent with the nature of God. Uh, Ezekiel 18 is, I think, one of the most powerful chapters in the Old Testament in dealing with the character of God and how he responds to man either doing what is right or committing evil. And just as an example, in verse 23, God tells Ezekiel, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, said the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? So, the picture is inaccurate that God just delights in sending lightning bolts all over the place to nail people. That is not his pleasure. He does indicate here the wicked will die. We, we can't escape and ignore that. But the point is, God has no pleasure in that. He derives his pleasure from seeing a person turn from his ways and live. So I think if we're going to begin to discuss the character of God and become critical of it, we, in, this, in the name of intellectual honesty at least, should look at the whole picture. Let's look at the whole character of God. Yeah. Um, and consider that in our evaluation of who God is and whether I should serve him or not. Uh, because, um, as we agree, most Bible students will acknowledge this because it's plain, God is a God of judgment. There are examples of his anger in the Old Testament. Yes, there are. And I'm glad you started that way because it shows that uh, we're looking at the creator of all things. God, He's God. He's deity. And obviously far more complex than we are. He, with the ability to create us and, and giving us all the skills and talents and the minds that he's given to us, uh, he is far greater. <clears throat> Isaiah's writings tell us that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so that is just a reality. Um, so, you know, when you look at something you, you read and, and it says, then the Lord God had done this thing. And so you, you look at it, um, it's hard to read that and, and say, wait a second, that can't be right. What I would encourage everyone to do when you come across a passage like that is to just back up and, and, and just kind of remember that God's mind, his power and his foresight and his eternal wisdom are all far beyond what we have. So he's, he's kept it here. He wants us to see it. Um, what is being said and what you did was you said let's get the balance back in place uh, by showing that God is a merciful God he's not so he, when someone says I won't serve an angry God well okay I mean you know I what, wouldn't what, want to serve a God who's angry all the time either and and what is your point is yeah. he angry because of your own behavior or right. you know what who is this God you're talking to because the God I talk to I go to in prayer many times every day because I know he loves me and cares for me and I love him more than I can explain. So for someone to talk about, it's almost like one child in the family um, because they're being, a, not a, almost said abused, because they're yeah. being disciplined. Um, mm -hmm. They would say, well, I'm being abused and all the other kids, you know, so one, one kid who needs a little more discipline than the others um, says, dad's always angry. Well, no, dad's always angry with you because you refuse to follow the simple instructions. Yes. And so that's a better picture of who God is. And, and so let me, let me give one example that I think is helpful. And that is uh, the Bible plainly says that God was angry 
with Solomon. So Solomon is the king of Israel. And now we have a passage in 1 Kings 11 that says God was angry with Solomon. So let's think about now we have an angry God with an individual in the Bible, and we'll just read that together. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, so he, he didn't just do it, he overdid it. Mm. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. God says, do not intermarry with foreign nations and foreign peoples, because they're going to introduce their gods and their worship services and worship style to you, and you're going to start to adopt some of that. And it opposes my will for your life and the relationship we have together. Solomon wholeheartedly took on all of these other women. It goes on to say in verse 9 of 1 Kings 11, So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who appeared to him twice, and he commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So now in that text we see, here we have an angry God, yes, but it tells us why. His heart turned away from the Lord, and the Lord warned him uh, multiple times about this very issue. Yeah, and there, there again, it shows the panorama here, the whole picture. Mm-hmm. We acknowledge uh, the Scripture states he was God was angry, but we have to ask the question: Why is God just angry all the time, or was there a, a motivation, a reason? for his anger and it tells us because Solomon had turned away Solomon had ignored God's warning even from a favored position hmm. uh, God had appeared to Solomon and spoken with him twice that's more than the vast majority of humanity has ever experienced that's right so God Solomon had intimate knowledge and uh, an intimate relationship with God He'd been granted granted that great gift of wisdom, but he hadn't used that wisdom as he had indicated when when he was young. When he became old, he ignoring God's warning, sure enough, exactly what God had warned him about occurred. And, and there's a there's a scriptural point about that that we cannot miss, and that is to whom more light is given, more is required. More truth, more instruction, God's Light has been shown on Solomon in this in this case, specifically regarding these things, and Solomon did the opposite. So you say, well, what about all the other men in Israel that married foreign wives? They're, they also know that they should not. But God appeared to Solomon twice. And he's the king, so he sets yes. an example. He's the king, exactly. He's the one who's going to control what happens in the nation and how it takes place. And, and the Lord spoke to him directly to keep these things from happening and didn't impose his own will on Solomon, but said, don't do this. And again, that's the consistency of God. Does he have a right to be angry? Yes, because just as a father rules the home, the instructions were laid down clearly, and the children said they understood the rules. So when the violation takes place, uh, they can't claim ignorance. They right. know exactly what they were told, and they did it anyway. So it's it's obviously 
much more simple than people make it to be when, when they look at God and say, man, he's just so angry. He's always upset with somebody and never seems to be smiling on anyone. Uh, another classic place for this is when the Israelites move into the land of Canaan. Uh, and on through the years, there's several commandments from God to wipe out entire peoples, men, women, children, the animals, you know, it, it, so it's passages like that that really start to concern people where they say, okay, I, you know, if he just picks an entire people and says, kill them all, including the children, that's not who I am. I can't even begin to see the wisdom in that. Um, on the surface, I think that's fair. Uh, that deserves some attention and, and should be should be investigated. When you when you look at the Canaanite people and the commandment to destroy them all, you're doing yourself a disservice to look just at that and reach your conclusion. And I'll give you the reason why. Because when when the Lord spoke to Abraham, so this is generations before Moses, the Lord spoke to Abraham. He said, "I will make of you of your seed a great people, a great nation, and through you all nations will be blessed." He tells Abraham there that his people, though they will be a great nation and grow into greatness, they will be in slavery um, to a greater nation, which is Egypt. All that came to pass. And he says they're going to be there for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or not yet complete. That's Genesis 15, 16. He says the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, that's interesting. So God's people are going to wait and be in bondage for 400 years because he's waiting for another group of people to have filled the iniquity against him that he can no longer stand, that them being in existence. So now, you know, now we're shining a little more light on this. And that's not the only place that he says it. In Deuteronomy 9, when Moses is about to bring the people into the land, he says to them, do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So that's why. He's not saying, I pick this group over this group. Moses says to them, even in that statement in chapter 9, you're a stiff-necked people. It is not you. You are not so glorious that God just can't stand but to give you everything you ever asked for. You're stiff-necked and you're rebellious just like them. But the timeline is filled now. They, they have reached the peak of their iniquity against God. And, and so now it is time for them to be driven out. And, and, and to me, and I'll let you make a comment if you'd like to, but to me, that answers the question about the children. If this people has reached an iniquity that is completely full according to the judgment of God, there is no turning back for this people, then taking the children in my mind, would be the greatest thing that could happen to them because they won't come up and live under such wickedness. Yeah, those those children are with him now. Exactly. Because, yes, they die, but they die in innocence. And someone might say, well, why should they suffer the consequence for the wrongdoings of their, of their parents and their elders? Well, they're, that's a good question. But, again, look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Yet those adults knew better, and they are suffering the consequence that God had warned them about, given them 400 years to change. Mm-hmm. Is that, that fits, 120 years at the flood. God doesn't delight 
in the death of the wicked. He gives people a chance, Cain and Abel. But the children, well, they're really better off. He's rescued them from a depraved, immoral, destructive life. And we that, often that, that they would grow up in that society. Yeah, that, that that's my conclusion. We often say that you know I, I don't want to whittle on God's end of the stick, and that, that's I like I like that because the Lord's doing things I don't fully understand. So for me to take His end of the stick and go, hey, you're doing that wrong, you know, that's crazy. Yeah, that's His end. I He's given me my end. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I know so, what I'm supposed to do. That's right. I like that. But if if you'll allow me just to offer this, if let's say that you're God and you know. For a fact that every one of these children will grow up and be even more wicked than the parents who bore them, which is the nature of sin and sinful behavior. If you knew that they were going to grow up and commit sin against you and lose their soul, like you said in Ezekiel 18, if he takes them now, that's the most merciful thing he could do. Amen. So yeah. now we're looking at a God of anger. It's like, why would he kill children? Well, if you look at it in this way, and, and, and obviously with what he told Abraham, what he told Moses, and what Moses told the people, that this people is so entirely wicked that God will not allow them to stay anymore, then he's brought the children to himself, and it's the greatest move you could make. If you are God, you would do the same thing, because it would be unjust to let those that you could save continue down a path that you knew led to death. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, again, I think it's it's dangerous for me to go beyond what the scriptures reveal. Mm -hmm. But if if we just took that as an as a for instance, then it does help us think it through, at least on our side of things. I believe God did what was perfectly right in that moment because He always does, and I, I don't doubt that at all. Psalm seven and verse eleven says, "God is a just judge, mm -hmm. and God is angry." You ready for this? God is angry with the wicked every day. There it is. He's just, and he's angry. Yeah, with the why, wicked. Why is he angry? <laughs> with the wicked. Yeah, it's because of their wickedness. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there are people that God is angry about all the time. But he gives them a chance. Yeah. Let, let's remember that. Uh, the picture is, oh, he's just going to dump dump bulls of wrath on them right now. It's going to be Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. No, he, he gave the Amorites 400 years. He gives us a chance today. He sure does. He gives us our lifetime to heed his warning and to seek his goodness. Yeah, and Peter even brings it up that God waited in the days of Noah. Yeah, Noah waited. constructed yeah. the ark during a time of divine long-suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't, we can't ignore that. God is divinely suffering long with a people who have absolutely turn their back on him how long 120 years you know which one of us and by the way anger is something that god expresses and he feels and senses and, and he, he gives that to us in the bible and he's given that to us as well so you know look at yourself how do you handle anger um, not that the lord would make a mistake in his anger because his goodness and his severity are perfectly balanced but we don't do very well with anger and we do things that we wish people would just understand you know so again, even on that, just on that base level, just say, hey, okay, well, let's give let's give the Lord a minute here. Let's look into this closer and think this through, uh, because He deserves that. Yeah, and that's a that's a good point because God even warns us about our anger. He's given it to us, and it it can be properly expressed. That's right, as we see in Jesus. 
but he warns us, be angry. There are times when you should be angry, but do not sin. Do not sin. There and it is. we so easily let our anger cause us to sin because then we feel justified. I'm angry about that, and I'm going to do something about it. Well, now that's a step too far. Right. It's up to God to do something about it because he's the perfect judge. So he's, he's commanded us to be angry and do not sin. Then that's who he is. Yes. He has been angry, and he did not sin. He did not sin, right. He did what was perfectly just and perfectly right in that moment for all the reasons, again, some that we can see, many that we cannot see. He knows all things from beginning to end, and he's not wrong. Uh, and we too often we blame him for being wrong about something that we're, we're making a judgment in our limited perspective. So that, that is always a mistake on our, on our part. You mentioned Jesus. Um, Jesus as he comes and shows us the expressed image of God, all that God is, mm -hmm. people are more drawn, I think, to Jesus. You think about the sacrifice on the cross, the healing of the sick. Uh, he does condemn. He, he does speak very plainly to those who are in sin and tell them to get that fixed immediately, uh, just as God the Father would. But people seem to be more drawn to him. And So uh, why do you think that is? Well, I think he, it is because of his compassion. And as you pointed out, it's not that he is a contrast to the God of the Old Testament because Jesus is part of that Old Testament God. He is the Word. But he's, as he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's what the Father's like. He's compassionate yeah. toward those that are suffering. He's, God, God is, John says, God is love. Jesus evidenced that to the nth degree. That's right. Going to the cross. Yep. But people have heard this argument from God's critics and, and from skeptics along the line we're talking about. They'll kind of play the flip side. See how angry God is in the Old Testament? I like Jesus in the New Testament because ah, he's yes. all about love. <laughs> he, he healed the sick and, and he comforted people. He fed the hungry and everything. And he said, don't judge, lest you be judged. So we're not supposed to judge others. And that's another <laughs> blatant misstatement. You yeah. go on in that same passage, and Jesus basically tells us to judge. That's right. But judge righteous judgment. And so, again, here's that shallow, one-dimensional picture. Jesus is, he is just goodness. And and he he never condemned anybody. He Unless maybe they were really bad. Okay, define really bad. Right. You are then telling us there's a group of people that deserves wrath. Mm -hmm. But that's another subject. Jesus is the complete representation of God. Yes, he is love and compassion and mercy, but he judges and condemns sin. He warns in, in Mark 9 three times... Basically, that if you've got something in your life that will send you to hell, get rid of it. Just like you, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? It's better to do that than to keep it, and he says, wind up in hell, yeah. where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He makes that statement three times. So he is, again... Not blasting the people, but warning them, if you don't change, here's what's going to happen. That's right. And just like the, quote, Old Testament God, unquote, 
Jesus has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No. He doesn't enjoy having to condemn sin, but he is just and it must be condemned. Toward the end of his ministry, you see him being very judgmental to the Pharisees. Because in Matthew 22, they had just tried to to deceitfully trap him in his words, to try to undermine him and, and destroy his influence and get the Romans to kill him. So there's some really dishonest motives there. So in chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes on them. Woe unto you, you hypocrites. And then outlines their wickedness and the, the things that they do and that they say. And then in Matthew 24, he goes on to tell them what is going to happen to that generation if they don't repent and describes the horrible destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Jewish state. So here is Jesus. Oh, just love and compassion and kindness. Yes, but also judging sin, condemning it, warning against it, telling the people, why should you die? I would rather that you should choose life and live because here's what's going to happen if you don't yeah that's right and he he made a whip of cords and came into the temple that's right and drove out the money changers flipped the tables over he was um, angry yeah but he did not sin that's right yeah. because he said you have turned my father's house of prayer into a den that's, of thieves yep. and is he angry about that yeah did he sin no they have no place there and yeah, he, he, he took it upon himself there. yep which is a beautiful picture of God cleansing his own temple. You know, coming in personally and cleaning house, as we, as we like to say. Mm. He was angry when he did that. And let me share a passage with you, too, that because, you know, some, some may say, well, Jesus was just never angry. I mean, he, because the reason why they say that is because the, the, I think the time when he should have been most angry, we see no anger at all on the cross leading up to the cross. When Judas betrays mm. him, he says, friend. Are you yes. betraying with the Son of Man with a kiss? Yeah. He just doesn't seem Amazing. to be angry. He's asking God to forgive those who are crucifying him. So if he can if he can hold up under that kind of pressure and, and brutal attack, then then he was never angry. And again, we've already shown that is not true. Mark three and verse one, mm -hmm. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. This man that Jesus sees, his one hand is healthy, the other is completely withered. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, so he turns to these people who are watching him closely. That's, that always makes me laugh. They're watching him. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent, and that's what cowards do. Yep, yes. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. There's anger, mercy, and compassion all at the same time. Yeah, in fact, people will focus on the anger, but there's another emotion there, too. He was grieved. Yes. At the hardness of their heart. Yeah. So he felt grief, too, that these individuals were so evil and so selfish that they couldn't even rejoice that a man's useless hand is now healed and as strong as the other healthy hand. Right. 
they they cannot even see that. In fact, they're not even looking for it. What are no, they, they looking for? We're watching this guy so we can get something against him. That's right. Not that. Look at the mercy and benevolence and compassion that he's shown to this man. This man's completely healthy now. We should rejoice. And they don't. And, and you, they don't. And if you look at this passage, and it, it ties everything together about what we were talking about, because we, we keep saying God's angry because of sin. And then look at those nations that were entirely destroyed. Like, why would he kill the children? Because there's no turning back. It's the same right here. It says that the man stretched out his hand and it was restored as whole as the other. Then verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Yeah. So they said, <laughs> it's wrong for you to heal on the Sabbath, but it's okay for us to plot someone's death yeah. and murder on, yeah. the, on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, See yeah. See how twisted and, and how unreachable these men are. Yes. And, and Jesus was angry. How come he's not compassionate with them? How come he's not giving them time? Because there's nothing left in them to turn. He is giving them time, though. He I did, mean, didn't he? he? He, Like I said in Matthew 24, he warns them. So he, you know, he's not the God that people like to portray where Jesus, they act like this, and so he just waves his hand and vaporizes them on the spot. Right. He, he He's blunt with them, mm -hmm. but he's still showing mercy. He's hoping that they will get a clue by what they're seeing and hearing and change their ways. Yep. And he will save them if they do. That's right. So, I mean, every time we look at these instances, we can see that there's something there where we, we can tell that the one who's in sin that God is angry with is just absolutely not going to turn back and does not care. And, and even then, as you said, many times he just lets their lives play out. He gives them time to think about it. And I think that strengthens the accountability side of it. Absolutely. Because, you know, yeah. how do you stand before God after a lifetime of saying, nope, 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 don't care, don't care, he's angry, I'm not going to do that. And then finally get before him after all the ways he spoke to you and, and say, oh, I'm not accountable. I didn't know or I didn't understand yeah. or I didn't know this was really going to happen. Or Nope, that is not going to be there for you us. Have no excuse. You, you have deliberately chosen on your own to make those decisions and you're accountable for them. There's consequences for the evil and there's blessings for the good. And that's always who God is. So, yeah, it just bothers me that people want to stay on the wrong side of this equation. Yeah. Well, again, I think, you know, to be clear, I think it's self-serving. It yeah. provides us with a noble sounding reason for not allowing ourselves to be accountable to God, to not recognizing <laughs> that there is a God I will give account. That's right. And I think Paul gives us a very important word of warning, some good advice in Romans eleven twenty two. when we're considering God. Let's be careful we're not looking at just one aspect of his character and highlighting that and using that to justify whatever position it is we've taken uh, concerning God. Paul says, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. There so is. there's the whole character of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. <laughs> Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So God is a God of mercy and a God of judgment. And they're perfectly balanced. They're perfectly balanced. Yeah. And whichever characteristic we are going to see depends on how we relate to God. Yeah. It depends on our relationship with him. Not whether he 
delights in zapping someone or just picking someone to save them over someone else without even having done anything, without even having been born yet. Yeah. God responds to us. Yeah. So our title is, I Will Not Serve an Angry God. And you know what? As we've been working through this today, Kurt, I'm thinking, if someone says to me, I will not serve an angry God, then say, well, good luck, because now you're serving yourself, and good luck never being angry. Yeah. Because if, 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 you, if you leave yeah. God, then you are serving yourself, and now you're accountable to the, the standard you gave him. Mm-hmm. Will you never be angry? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. right? If yeah. I'm God, then I let's can't be, be angry because be he's too angry for me. Yeah, that's right. Let's apply the rule to ourselves. If, if we've kicked God out of the picture, like you said, now I've raised myself up to the status of my own God. Okay, what standard am I setting for myself? <laughs> you already set your you standard. Better, you better <laughs> think it over. That's right. This doesn't make much sense. And so I, I think this was a very good study and, and something that needs attention because it is said. And as I said, I think even the sincere Bible student looks at passages like the ones we, we cited and, you know, I've done it too. I say, oh boy, you know, I got, man, I got to think about this a little bit. I, none of this makes me comfortable. Um, if I put myself in a, in a town that's just utterly destroyed and God says, kill the children, you know, people watch that happen. It happened to them. And fathers watch their children and their wives die. And, you know, just it's, it's as bad as you can possibly imagine. How can that be? And so I hope that it's been helpful that we've gone through this and talked about some of those things and at least given everyone, um, other ways to think about it and to consider it. And just remember, if you're looking at a text, bring in everything you can concerning that text so that your conclusion is balanced with what God has given to you. That That's always a helpful tool as well. All right. I'm angry, so I'm going to nail you with a couple of tough Uh-oh. questions. Here and come a couple of lightning bolts. Like, no mercy, man. I didn't man. even do anything wrong to you. No well, dolphins that's, jokes that's debatable. Oh, well, okay. That's true. You didn't bring up the dolphins today. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going with camels now. I don't. No one knows our problem. I so just so everyone knows, Kurt loves dolphins way more than any human being should, and I hate them. So, in our conversations, we've learned this about each other. And uh, dolphins are the point of anger. I mean, you know, Kurt's just got he's just overflowing with love. And oh, I'm, you should see my bedroom, man. I got little stuffed dolphin things all over my bed. There's a picture of Flipper over my pillow. That's, all right, we're going to move on because yes, that's, that's, that's too much. I, <laughs> so now I hope everyone understands where I'm coming from. <laughs> this is all tongue-in-cheek, folks. How angry I get. All right. Okay, go ahead, Danny. I, I'm doing number one. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, here off. we go. Trivia. Sweet trivia. Who is the oldest man that ever lived recorded in the Bible? Methuselah. How old was he? 969 years. Very good. Genesis 5, 27. Methuselah was 969 years and he died. All right, that's number one. I'm going to have to make it harder on you. What's my first question? Okay, this this one, it kind of a... I've thought about this in the proper way to word it. Um... There's only one miracle that we might view as negative that Jesus performed. Uh, Some would say it's a destructive miracle uh, where something was not benefited. Um, In fact, he he caused something to die. I'll just throw a hint there. Oh, okay. So what was that miracle? It it has to be 
The cursing of the fig tree. Yes, that's right. He withered the fig tree. Um, so it was yeah. a miracle that just wasn't productive. It 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 yeah. destroyed life. But that fig tree wasn't productive. You know, if you uh, stop and think about it, yeah. what was he doing there? That he was using it as an object lesson for Israel. But it's the only miracle that he performed that we might term destructive. You know, there was no healing in this miracle. No resurrection to life in fact it is causing a living thing to die but isn't this exactly this trivia question exactly proves the point that we were just dealing with yeah it does he came to a tree that would not bear fruit and it won't ever bear fruit next year is not going to be any better and it was putting on like it did have fruit which is a picture of hypocrisy and everything yes a picture of jerusalem Mm -hmm. and, and the jewish people at that time so he curses the tree and as you said, it wasn't destructive because it was never going to produce anything. So yeah. that's pretty neat how that ties. Even that moment, we say, well, he did something negative. No, that tree was done for, yeah. and he simply choked but, it off early. Yeah, <laughs> there was no evil motive or wish to harm there. No. Here's an unproductive tree. What does a gardener do with an unproductive tree? He kills it. He because cuts it's it down. Stealing the nutrients out. Yep. out of the ground from the other plants. But it was a, ultimately, you know, let's look at the big picture. It was a lesson and a warning to Israel. You are an unproductive tree, even though you're putting on yep. the appearance that you're fruitful. But this is what happens. There's no fruit at all. The gardener takes out the unfruitful plant. That's right. All right. Number two on me. Number two. One of the times that King Saul was pursuing David, he had followed him up onto the rocks of the wild goats. Then Saul had to use the restroom mm. <laughs> in the same cave where David and his men were staying. Um, when David had King Saul in the cave, tending to his needs, he had a chance to kill him. What did he do instead? He cut off a piece of his robe, if I remember correctly. What piece? The, the hem. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give it to you. I'm just joking. That is the corner. The okay. Bible says the corner of his robe. He yeah. secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. 1 Samuel 24 and verse 4. Uh, I, I love that moment. You know, Saul's pursuing, and he's got all his men outside. David's inside the cave, and Saul goes, oh. Like, divinely, someone divinely pressed on his bladder. <laughs> he's like, well, here's the spot, boys. i got to use the restroom. <laughs> yes. So he goes to tend to his needs, and just a perfect situation. David's men say, oh, David had him. This is it. At his mercy, yep. God said he would turn him over to you, and this is it. And David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He does move close enough to cut the corner of his robe off. And another interesting thing, looking at David's heart, is the next verse says that David was deeply troubled, that he cut his robe. Yeah, a seemingly minor incident. but yeah. A guy who's trying to kill him? Yeah, that's the royal robe. You know, he's That's kind of an insult to the king. It really is. But David uses that as proof. You know, I had you. He, when Saul goes back down the cave... David comes out and says, I I showed you, look at this. Does anybody know who this belongs to? This is your robe. <laughs> I could have cut you instead. Yeah. But, and Saul yeah. repents there for a brief moment. Yeah, he, he, does, he is driven to repentance on that. Okay, yep. good job. You've got 100. Cool. Uh, let's see. We're going to get you to 100, too. Oh, good. Um, when Joseph was uh, uh, given up by his brothers, which... Who were the two brothers who tried to save his life in that incident? Reuben, for sure. Yes. 
And I'm thinking Judah. Yes, you got okay. it. Right. How did Judah, in, in the moment? Uh, apparently, Reuben kind of planned this. Uh, Genesis 37, 21 and 22, he he said, let, instead of killing him, let's throw him in this pit. And he thought With later the intention of going back later and getting him yeah, out. Right. Uh, Judah, in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 37, sees a caravan of Ishmaelites going by. He says, hey, instead of killing him, why don't we profit from him? Let's yeah. just sell him into slavery. Uh, which uh, he wasn't intending to save his life as Reuben was, but he did save his life. Yeah, and got into Egypt. God, God, <laughs> God was providential. And, you know, it was out of greed. Hey, let's make some money off of him instead of just killing him. Yeah. But as he in doing that, he spared his life. So, yeah, awesome. you're right. Reuben I, and Judah. Hey, nice. man, we're smoking it today. Absolutely. And they got 10 shekels of silver for their brother and it was only 10 brothers so they got one piece of silver each for a family member wow how sad yeah awesome well very good uh, our title again is our i will not serve an angry god it is a it is a, a difficult subject but you know I, I think in our own lives there are times when we need god to be angry we depend on him to, to be angry, to be justly angry. Um, you know, if a child is mistreated by a family member, especially the little ones, that just really pulls on our heart. But to be mistreated by adults and for a child who's trafficked, you know, oh, yeah. anyone who sees that kind of behavior from, from full-grown adults, we don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. We can't find them. If we did, we couldn't do anything about it. God can. Yes. And, and he, will. he will. Yes. And we need him to be angry at the right time. And so... To, you know, to say I won't serve an angry God is uh, you're removing half of who God is in all of his justice and in the ability to correctly discern the human heart. And so it's just it's just a mistake to say that I won't serve him. I think a better thing is, is hey, he can get angry and I know why he can and will get angry. And so I, I just want to make sure I'm not part of that anger or the reason for that anger. It's just a much better place to be than just saying, uh, no, thank you. I won't serve a God who gets angry. I just, I mean, it's very shallow, as you said in the beginning. So we hope this has been encouraging for all of you who have listened today. We certainly appreciate you listening and, and being a part of this work. And and, uh, and we're blessed to know that you're out there and that you care about the will of God. May, may he bless you and keep you throughout this week, if it be according to his will.